1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're going to continue in our healthy local church um, pastoral epistles series with the entire chapter um, and a little bit of chapter 6 this morning. And so before we get there, I want to bring your attention to one verse in Acts chapter 20. If you're familiar with that section, you remember that this is the time when Paul is addressing the elders. Actually, I forgot. My name is Dustin. Alex Dake has been all over me for never introducing myself when I get up here. My name is Dustin. If you do not know me, I'm also one of the pastors here at HCC, and it's nice to meet you. Okay. Acts 20, verse 28. He's addressing the elders at Ephesus. And what you see is this beautiful address of him showing the importance, the gravity, the weightiness of stewarding the local church. And tucked right in that section is verse 28 that says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The elders there are commanded to care for the church of God, paying careful attention not only to themselves but also to the flock. But the phrase that I think just puts so much weight on what we're doing as a church that we steward this incredible gift of the local church as a faith family is that this, these people are obtained with Jesus's blood, purchased, redeemed, and belonging to him alone, which means when we talk about this stuff of how to become a healthy church and what structures need to be in place in order to do more ministry and discipleship and evangelism and all these things, we need to understand that this church is not primarily our church. It's not about us. This is Jesus's church that he purchased with his own blood, and it's about him. And this is why we must consider what God's word says about how to operate as a church and not what culture says or not what we think works, but what God says in his authoritative word. Um, in other places in the New Testament, we see in Ephesians 3 that the church is showing off the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly beings. In John 13, Jesus tells us that the way that we love one another as the people of God is a clear witness to a watching world of him. And then all the commands in the New Testament are given to us to show us all of the differing ways that we can do that, even the ways that we structure our church and ministries. So this is crucial for us. It's good even on sections that might feel like it's kind of more logistic or pragmatic of how to run certain things. It's crucial because we need to honor God in the way that we run, quote unquote, church. And I love that we're going through pastoral epistles. I hope this hasn't happened to you, but sometimes it might be tempting to think these are pastoral epistles, meaning how could they apply to non-pastors? Um, I hope you don't go that way, but there's at least two ways it applies to you directly. The first way is that it's hopefully becoming increasingly clear that it matters what kind of pastors we have lead this church. And so it's good for us to see these qualifications and the way ministry should run, and we should hold that up in light of the people that we elect and the people that we affirm to lead this flock, not just now, but for decades from now. And then, of course, by extension and application, the realities and the directives of these texts apply to all of us in our walks with Christ as we are a church family on mission. And so with that being said, the title of the sermon this morning is Family Business, family business. 
And one of the prevailing metaphors or realities that we see in the word when it speaks of God's people is the idea that the church is family. The word makes it clear over and over again that we're to operate as a family, not primarily as a ministry business or a ministry content output center. We are to be a family. And what we get in this passage in 1 Timothy are some marching orders of how we should operate and regulate the way that we do certain things as a family. And so you're going to see four sections this morning. The first section is just going to be on how we are to treat each other. How should we look at each other as family? The next section that you'll see is how we should, how we should handle caring for widows in our family. The third section is how we should honor and hold elders accountable in our family. And then lastly, we'll see how bond servants and masters should operate in the church together. And so I'm going to read the whole text in the beginning, and I want you to be looking for those four movements. Um, and one more reminder before I read it, um, you're not going to see a direct gospel explanation in this text, um, but it's important to remember that all of the Bible, but in the New Testament in particular, is done in light of the gospel. And so Jesus Christ has died for our sins, rose again to bring us back to the Father by faith. And in light of that, not only are we forgiven from our sins, we're empowered to live the Christian life as a church family. And so don't see these as a list of commands. This is actually in light of what Jesus has done, saving you not only to God the Father, but to a family. This is what we are empowered to be as we reflect his glory to a watching world and in our city. So all these commands in light of the gospel, even though you might not see it explicitly in the text. So let's start in verse one of chapter five, read the whole thing together. God's word reads, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation of having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows." Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
And for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also are good works conspicuous. Even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, I know that's a lot. Hopefully you saw those four movements this morning. Um, I'm actually going to go not in order. So I know for some of you who are type A, that is going to bug you, and I'm sorry. Ask for your forgiveness. But we're going to start out with chapter 6, 1 and 2, regarding bond servants and masters. Then we'll go to caring for widows, elder honor and accountability, and then we'll end our time this morning with treating, treating each other as family. So, let's look again at, at chapter 6, what we just finished with and consider what it has to say for us. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, just as a reminder for us, when you see texts like this, it's important to understand that the gospel undergirds um, all of these commands. And it's crucial that you see, off the bat, that gospel people, those who have been saved by Jesus, don't have any areas of their life that are off limits. God wants all of our lives, even the areas in which we work, in the way that we operate with authorities in our lives. Um, I think it's a temptation sometimes for us to separate out the a sacred part of our life, you know, Sunday morning, community group, time with the Lord with our Bible, and then a secular part of our life where you work a job. The Bible does not have these categories. The Bible wants to, you to glorify God in all that you do, and none of the time that you spend 40 to 50 hours a week at your jobs are off limits. You aren't just working to get to the rest of your life. God cares deeply about how you work and why you work. And so these two verses are going to give us insight into how the church, when it goes to work, how it glorifies God. So let's get some context for bondservant and master language. And probably you're wondering, why do I keep saying work? I think for application purposes, it's helpful to see the directives toward bondservants and apply it to how we view our roles as employees in whatever place you work. Um, likewise, you'll see this language pick up in other New Testament letters um, they also don't just deal with bond servants, but also have commands for how masters should operate. And I think it's helpful for you to view that as the way that you lead and oversee people in whatever occupational setting you might be. And additionally, I think it's fair for the students among us to take some of these applications, these same principles, and apply it to the way you do your job of college and relate to the leadership over you and the rules of the classroom and instructors that you are enrolled in. And what should also be made clear 
um, if you're paying attention to this language, it's kind of difficult sometimes to hear the bondservant master language, especially in light of the country you live in and the past horrors of slavery. You should take great comfort in knowing that the idea of bondservant and master relations in this context were not anything remotely close to the horrors of slavery and slave trading. Um, so brief um, biblical research on this, I got this from ESV Study Bible, showing us the reality of bondservants in that culture. So typically they worked for pay. Uh, the system was not inherently race-based. They would do this voluntarily to help pay off debt and get out of poverty. They would often keep their jobs even after paying for their freedom to continue working in the place that they were in. Now, none of this is to say that this wasn't sometimes a brutal work environment, and they were not free in the sense that we are free today, but it's safe to say that Paul is addressing the ideas of these particular working environments and the way it relates to relationships in the church. Uh, one author says that Paul is writing commands like this about bondservants, not to support the institution, but to empower and give soul strength to the ones in the situation. Um, hopefully you know this too. This could be a common objection um, to Christians, especially in our culture. You need to understand, it is um, true and good to say that God opposes the brutal owning of a human being. Um, I love how another author reminds us that the gospel actually eradicates the bondservant-master relationship and replaces it with brother-to-brother -brother relationship, and we see this most clearly in the book of Philemon. The gospel radically transforms the way this institution, even in the context where the New Testament letters were written and how it operated in this culture. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes another command to bondservants that they should seek their freedom when they can buy it. That's 1 Corinthians 7. 21. And even in our own book that we're in right now, 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you remember this from a few weeks ago, verse 10, Paul is listing um, sins that can happen in humanity, and he lists this, should be on the screen. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, prejurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So it's clear the New Testament commands and the church would undermine slavery or bond servanthood while maintaining the ethical demands of people who found themselves in this particular role in this context. And so with these cultural pieces in place, let's seek the meaning of this and consider how it could apply to us as employees or our position as students where we are obviously free to quit whenever we want. Um, I think at the very least, this obviously less than ideal work environment that they would have been in in this culture should eliminate our excuses to not work like gospel people. So in verse one, it says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. The first thing you need to see, all of the people under this. What is clear here is that it's not contingent on if they like the situation or if we like our bosses. In every scenario, the gospel frees us to honor our authority and our bosses, even bad ones. And this can apply a lot of different ways, um, not the least of which is to not complaining about your boss, not cheating time and doing your best in the work environments that you're in. For school, it could apply to not cheating on tests, not purposely undermining the teacher that is over you. And why do we do this? It's not just so we can be good moral people. The, the text gives us the reason. You see that? Let them show honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So you need to hear this. The way that we, as a church, go into our communities and work our jobs is a way that we glorify God. Don't revile the name of God by the way you work or study. The way that you work at your job adorns the gospel teaching that we hold dear. 
And this doesn't just mean sharing the gospel at work or in class, although that's obviously a good thing to do. It actually has to do with the way that you do your job. So I would love this. Wouldn't you love if people in our city, employers in Huntington, would beg to hire members of this church? That they would know, man, those people love Jesus, which means they're going to be the hardest working people with the most integrity that honor the authority that is in them. Or teachers at Marshall, man, they want the students that go to that church on Norway Avenue because of how respectful they are and the way that they have integrity in their classrooms. Look at verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So in the great scenario where everybody in the, in the work environment is a Christian, we don't disrespect the people over us. We serve all the better because we benefit them. And if we had time this morning, if I only was given those two verses, we could cross-reference this with other directives in the New Testament to round this out, but we have three other realities that we need to get to this morning. But I would encourage you to look up other New Testament verses that talk about how you work, bond servants, masters relationships, and round out a theology of work so that we might be people who glorify God in the jobs that God puts us. The way that we operate in our workplaces, at school, is a witness to the world of the character of God. Even if, and I would say especially in, the job that you don't like We serve and we work hard with full integrity. So a question you need to wrestle with this morning is how does the way that you work, what does it say about God? Verse three, it's a hard shift, I know, but the next section we need to look at is another crucial aspect of our life as a faith family. It's verses three through 16, it talks about widows. So I want you to read carefully with me because there's some debate on this passage as to what happens here. So I'm going to read it for you um, together. Please follow along so we can worship Jesus together in the studying of this. It says, the command to the church is honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's brutal. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, and has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers and going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, I understand, there are some confusing things to work through in here. Like, why does it look like he's condemning marriage, and then all of a sudden he says that they should marry? What is going on with how the church should handle widows? And I'll be honest, I relied heavily on commentaries here and other sermons, um, which admittedly took different approaches to this text, so in some ways it was helpful, in other ways it was more confusing. 
But for this part, I want to, to help all of us make sense of this section. I want to establish some key realities in the word. So some key biblical moral realities. God cares about widows, the destitute, and the poor. This is consistent through the witness of the Old Testament, and as the new covenant people of God, we get to live out this aspect of God's heart in the way that we love and care for the destitute um, among us. Second biblical moral reality, the early church cared about widows. Do you remember in Acts 6? That was one of the first problems that happened. We had to have a leadership meeting of these these specific widows are not being cared for. What are we going to do? And they, um, remember we said it was kind of the archetype of where the deacon, the office of deacon came from, that these people were elected and empowered to go care for widows among the early church. Um, number three, James, if you're familiar with the book of James, you know that James calls caring for widows part of the essence of true religion. The essence of true religion is caring for widows. Number four, we must take these things seriously because it's what gospel people do. It's how we operate. You are a person who has been saved by Jesus. You have been forgiven and empowered to care for the vulnerable among you. Now, also, some key cultural realities here to help us understand. Number one, the people in this time didn't have 401ks. They didn't have life insurance. They didn't have assisted living homes. Right, So obviously a widow in this scenario would be set up much worse than maybe some widows are in current 21st century American culture. Second cultural reality, to make sense of this text, clearly these younger widows in the church were causing issues by not staying faithful to Christ. Did you catch that? They were busy bodies, they were going around, some even straying after Satan. Those are really strong words. So obviously something is happening in Ephesus at the time that needed to be addressed. And number three, you should know, that there's false teaching at the time in Ephesus saying that marriage is bad. So this explains Paul pushing marriage for young widows. So, biblical moral realities, cultural context realities, now let's talk about HCC context realities. I don't know if you knew this or not, but we are, aren't a church with a lot of people over the age of 60 years old. You knew that or not. And we're blessed with only... One widow in our church family, in our membership, and I don't know all of the stories of all of you that are guests or maybe been coming for a while, but right now, we have one. She's an incredible woman of God. Hopefully, you've gotten to know her. Her name is Cheryl Heinerman. You should know her if you don't. Um, I told her this week that I was planning on honoring her, and she did not love this idea. <laughs> but when she realized that she would be working nursery this morning, she became okay with it. And so... She can't hear this right now. And I'm sure that there are some of you listening even this morning that may be widowed as well. We need to see this as a church now so that we might be prepared to care well for honorable widows in a way that pleases God when we are blessed with that season of time in our church family. And even some of us now are in the season of caring for aging parents. So there are direct applications in this passage for you too. Other realities here, some commentaries are comfortable with applying these directives to the church's care for single moms, those who may have been abandoned and left alone without help and support, not necessarily left alone due to a, the death of their spouse. Others of you maybe have just been abandoned by your spouse altogether in divorce or adultery and feel the pain of being destitute emotionally even though you're fine physically. 
It is good for church family to be the ones who are there in our family for those who do not have family. So pastoral realities here. Regardless of where you are or in these differing applications or groups, I know that bringing something up like this can be extremely painful. And I want you to know the Lord knows your pain. The church is here for you, to love you, and be family to you. And as all of us consider the heart of God for this matter, it should not just stick in this room or in this faith family. It should overflow missionally as we care for the vulnerable and alone in our city. So let's be faithful now to what we have. Let it overflow to where there's not one lonely widow in this whole city. But then there's also some debate here on this passage. And the debate centers in on verse 9. Maybe you, maybe you saw that when we were reading it, where it talks about enrolling widows on a list. So some people would say, is enrolling, is the, are they on a care list? So like talking about that, who do we financially support? Are they, do we enroll these widows on that care and support list? Or others say that is this some kind of ministry service list where um, these special older ladies in our faith family are given influence and um, opportunity to serve and love the saints among us. So for our purposes this morning, I'm going to take the approach that the list that widows are enrolled in involves setting up precious older ladies, older widows in our faith family to be loved and supported to do vital ministry work in the church and the community. According to one commentary that I read, this is the majority position among biblical scholars, um, but if you disagree on this, we can talk afterwards. Um, I understand there might be some differing where you land on this. For our purposes this morning, we're going to see verse 9 as a pivot into this special list of empowering widows in a faith family. So we're going to go through this passage line by line with all of those lenses at play and just try to see exactly what Paul is telling Timothy about widows in particular to this faith family in Ephesus. And I want to challenge all of you to consider your own lives, your own commitment to this faith family, and let your ministry imaginations run wild as we consider how to care for the vulnerable among us and the vulnerable in our city. So verse 3, here we go. Let's walk through it together. Honor widows who are truly widows. So the idea behind honor here is support, financially caring for and loving um, service and care. And clearly, Paul is delineating between true widows, meaning who need the financial support of the church, or widows who are still loved and part of the family, but don't need the support of the church financially. Verse 4 continues this thought. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show godliness to their own household, or excuse me, they must first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And so here's where we see this text show us what a true widow is, meaning who needs the church's honor and support. One of the qualifications that is clear for helping these widows in the faith family is that they have no family to support them. Did you see that? As an application for us now is that Christians should support their aging parents. This is pleasing in the sight of God. And it would not do us any good this morning to use this pulpit to bind your conscience to a certain way to do this. But suffice to say, we can't let the current systems we have in America be an excuse for not loving and supporting our aging parents and grandparents. The church is clearly the second line of defense in the care for these widows. The family should be held accountable to do it first. This is a way that we show off the glory of God in a life that pleases him. Look at verse 5. 
She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So next we see that this widow must be someone who's been abandoned by family and is an example of godliness. She hopes on God and is demonstrated in a life of self-denial and prayer and not self-indulgence in pursuing things that are killing her spiritually. And then Paul tells Timothy in verse seven, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. So here's what is clear. If the Lord blesses us with a godly widow in this faith family that has no family to support her, whenever you made a covenant up here saying you're in on this church family, we are all in with helping them. We are family. That is your new spiritual grandma and mom. That's what the church does. And when I visited Cheryl this week, at the time I went there, her daughter and grandkids were there, and it was clear that Cheryl was so thankful for her godly kids and the way they take care of her. I was proud to see this happen in action. And so while we should honor and love and care for all widows in our church family and future church family, we are commanded here to make sure we are holding the family accountable first, and if they are left alone, the church steps in. Look at verse eight, stinging rebuke. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This undergirds the original application that we were making before we read the text. If you don't work to provide and help your family, you should question whether or not you know Jesus. Worse than an unbeliever. It's a brutal warning shot for all of us. And here's where we're gonna... Before we switch gears, I want to speak just to college students or those of us in our 20s and 30s that maybe our parents aren't at the age where they need our direct help. The way we set the culture in our heart to be able to do this well is that we are people who honor our parents now, that we take effort to ensure that they are loved and cared for now so that we are ready. It's not going to be a situation thing. It's going to be a heart thing of how we express love, care, and appreciation for our parents as they age. And so we switch gears. While, we're, while we uh, consider how the church can empower widows for ministry and service. And so please keep in mind the original context that we discussed about what was going on in Ephesus with the false teaching surrounding marriage. So look at verse 9 with me. It's that sh- gear shift, remember. Let a widow be enrolled, remember we're saying to the ministry list to affirm them for um, ministry opportunities, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And so what we see here is that the church should empower widows who have shown a life of good works and service to the church. These incredible older ladies are blessings to the church and should be recognized and empowered. But look what happens in verse 11. Refuse to enroll younger widows. Why? For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So these particular widows were being drawn away from their faith by their ungodly marriages. And some people see that abandoned their former faith phrase as referring to some sort of vow that these particular widows made to stay single. And so setting yourself up for this um, last part, you know, last quarter of your life, if you're an older lady, is saying, I'm remaining single, I'm focusing on the church. And some of these younger widows were maybe wanting to get enrolled on this list to get support and set up for ministry, but instead of remaining single, they married unbelievers and so incurred condemnation, proving their hearts weren't really with Christ. And so here's what's clear. 
Paul was wanting to warn younger widows against living a life of sin. Look at verse 13. Clearly, this is what was happening. Besides that, they learned to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. This is what their life was marked by. Um, A lot of commentaries agree that this age 60 was not like this hardline rule. The point was that after 60 was trying to show this should be a widow who no longer has the capacity to work and care for themselves um, and would be past the age of bearing children. Um, It also should be noted that just because it says if she has brought up children, most scholars that I was reading agrees this doesn't eliminate um, godly widows who never had children or couldn't have children. It's saying that this was a person who was faithful in the home that they were all the way through and would be worthy of example and setting up for ministry opportunities. And so look at verse 14. This is what he's saying. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. So Paul is wanting the church to encourage the younger widows to not follow the satanic false teaching saying that marriage was bad. So they should marry and continue in their lives. And verse 16 gives us a summary of what's going on here. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. A summary statement that wraps this section up for us. The church should be burdened with supporting widows who have been deserted by their family and are exemplary in their godly lives. The families in the church family should care for their aging parents and grandparents. And we should all honor and empower the widows among us who have shown incredible lives of godliness. And so because she's in nursery, I will just say, thank you, Cheryl Heinerman. And a good application for all of us to set the groundwork so that we can be the type of church that 40, 50 years now, um, or even before then, if we're blessed with more widows, if we can set the groundwork for this type of culture, is that we would learn to love, honor, respect the hard-worn wisdom of the older saints among us now. It's how we set the culture for this. We don't love that we're a mostly younger church and assume that we don't need the older saints among us. I'll give you an example. Before I left um, Cheryl's house this week, she said, do you want a cinnamon roll? And I said, of course. And so we sat down with a cinnamon roll, blackberries, and a glass of milk. And we were talking while her grandkids were playing in the background, talking about life and ministry and the kingdom of God. And we were talking about how sometimes in life things just feel so heavy and there's suffering and we don't always know why. And she looked at me, tears in her eyes. She said, we don't always know why there's suffering in this world, but we know that glory is coming. I've heard John Piper say that a lot of different ways. But when an older saint in this faith family who has held my kids in the nursery looks at you and says these things, it sticks with you. And so the challenge here, if we're going to be this type of faith family, is that we set the culture now loving and honoring and respecting the older saints among us so that we are eager to help when they need us. Our church is truly blessed to have all of you older saints, which I know sometimes in this church means over 33. I was in a community group like four years ago and someone asked if Courtney and I were the only old people in the group. So, you know, let the reader understand. You need to know we honor you and respect you and we'll be here for you when you need us. We want, you to, we want to serve with you. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, 
and the laborer deserves his wages. So good elders, pastors are worthy of double honor. We should be a church that honors pastors who lead us well. We should be a church that loves and supports godly authority in our lives, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so we could grab a lot from the New Testament to paint a picture of what it means to rule well. But what is ruling well? I decided to use 1 Peter 5. It's one of my favorite passages of anchoring what a shepherd's ministry should look like. And so what does it look like? What are the pastors that we should honor well? How they shepherd? Well, they should actually shepherd. And in our training material that we go through as pastors, what we say shepherding is, is to know you, feed you, lead you, and protect you. And so as we see men who lay their lives down to do that for this faith family and this flock, we should honor them for that. They give willing and eager oversight in your life, not marked by bullying and domineering, and their lives should be examples to the flock. Like I said, we could take other passages and paint a more full picture of the case for who elders should be, but this passage is also a good text for showing that it's a good thing to pay your pastors so that they may work for the Lord and for your joy. Don't you love how Paul uses the Old Testament in this? He takes an animal husbandry law and applies it in a new covenant way, saying, how he should, a laborer in the gospel, preaching and teaching, deserves his wages. So he makes the case from the old covenant and a quote from the gospels from Jesus and shows this is a way that we can honor pastors who are occupationally um, shepherding in a church body. But the point is clear. We should be a church that honors our pastors. And they are going to hate this and don't know that I'm about to do this, but the three pastors that I get to walk with um, in this current season of our church family. It's Bruce Mosser, Jay Lacani, and Adam Goodwin. And I can say, I get to watch these men, and I can say with clear conscience, they're men of absolute integrity. I'm honored to get to walk with them and thankful that they put up with me. I'm telling you, it's a church that has good men leading us. It's something that we should be thankful for, we should express love and appreciation to. So, we transition from honor well to a way that we honor the pastorate is to hold them accountable. Look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. So accountability is crucial in the way that we honor the pastors among us. However, we should make sure we're holding them accountable to real and valid charges. You see that idea in verse 19? Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the charge that we bring against the elders should be given on evidence, not on just one person giving hearsay. I need to speak to something because we're in a cultural moment right now in American Christianity where we have seen an epidemic of bad men using the pastorate to abuse people. And you could see how they might take verse 19 use it to isolate people and make sure no charges come against them because there's not two or three witnesses. You need to understand that is against the spirit of this passage. If the sins of the pastor are illegal or extreme in an abusive way, you should seek appropriate authorities and involve people immediately. But the thrust of this passage is to make sure you substantiate the charges against the pastor so that it's not a personal grudge but a real sin pattern in their life that needs addressed. Now with that established, you should see the seriousness with which we should take this. If two people bear witness to sinful patterns in one of their pastors, the charges are brought, and if there's no repentance or change, they should be rebuked in the presence of all so that other pastors and all of us may have appropriate fear. Don't you love how the church is designed? 
It's not one pastor who rules everything and hides behind misapplications of passages to protect their sinful patterns. In a congregational ruled church, we must and get to hold pastors accountable. And if they won't repent or, or repent of clear sinful patterns, they should be rebuked and possibly removed in the presence of the church. But look, it keeps getting heavier, not just in the presence of the church, but verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So understand this, guys. Please, this is crucial. We must do these kinds of things with no partiality. We can't let our affinities for certain pastors blind us to their sin. That's not good for our church, and it's not good for the pastors um, who are shepherding us. So I want to say, please take license to help me see the sin and shortcomings in my own life. And I'm sure that my other brother elders would say the same thing. This is a sacred privilege that we must do for the purity of the church. And of course we need to be mature here. Help the pastors see their sin. Don't help us see things you might not like about us. There's a line here that will take maturity, but we must not have a church culture that makes pastors untouchable and beyond accountability while we honor the godly ones that I believe that we have now. And because of the seriousness of all of this, look at verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. We should not put people into ministry leadership quickly. One reason that we have to hopefully live in light of this verse is that we have to watch people for at least three years before they can even be considered or nominated to be a pastor among us. And that's a good thing. We don't want to be hasty on bringing people up in ministry, influence, and leadership. And then verse 22, Paul reminds Timothy to keep himself pure. So interesting here. Um, Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. This seems admittedly a little random, Um, It could be connected to some of the false teaching happening at Ephesus, maybe some kind of aestheticism where people are saying, you know, don't drink anything but water, that kind of thing. Honestly, not quite sure. But Paul clearly needed to let Timothy know that only water wasn't a requirement for purity, and apparently Timothy's tummy hurt sometimes, and it was good for him to drink some wine to help him out. And the final two verses in this section are good for us to remember about pastors, but it applies to all of us. As a church, we shouldn't just throw someone into ministry influence, even discipleship influence, just because they are likable or gifted or charismatic. We must reject that type of celebrity Christian culture in this faith family. Character over competence. Look at verse 24, makes this clear why we must do this. The sins of some people are conspicuous, meaning able to see them immediately, but going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those, um, even those that are cannot remain hidden. Take heart knowing that eventual fruit of someone will show, and because of this fact, we need to be patient and slow in the way we empower people for ministry, especially in the pastorate. So, let's crescendo our time of worship this morning in the Word with the first two verses that we started in. Let's look at family. Paul, writing to Timothy, tells him, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So the commands here are pretty clear for Timothy and for us. 
So I want to state it clearly and then show you some assumed realities that are here that we can work toward as a faith family. We are clearly not to rebuke, although this can't mean that we never rebuke an elder person because we know that we should in the case of an elder who persists in sin. And so the idea here is clearly about honor and respect and the way that we do that and encouragement. And so we should honor, encourage older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with an added caveat there for young Timothy, um, encourage younger men as sisters in all purity. So what are the assumed realities that make these commands make sense in a church family? A couple we've already gone over, but it's worth repeating. We should actually treat each other like family. You see that? Older women like mothers. Another assumed reality here is that men and women can be friends in all purity. Is it different? Of course. I'm not saying don't be unwise. But should we be siblings? Yes. Also, an assumed reality here, age and gender matter in the way that you relate to each other. See that? Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, older men as fathers, younger men as brothers. So I want to ask, if you're an older person, if you're a younger person, whatever, the obvious charge is clear. We should know each other as family. So do you know each other? If you don't, you should resolve to change this. It's going to take work, but the task for us as a church family is not to let commands like this stay theoretical. They should make their way down into the practical day-to-day. How do you encourage each other, especially going across gender and age lines? It's too easy. Please hear me. It is too easy to stay in our bubbles and let our church family become a collection of little families and little friend groups that only act like a family on Sunday. We can't do this. This must change. We can't let loneliness have a stronghold in this family. And this is going to become easier to do as we grow. As God brings more people into this family, it's going to be easier to not know everybody and let it be an excuse for not truly being family in Jesus' name. We must remember that Jesus' blood is thicker than blood. In Philippians 1, Paul encourages us to let our love abound more and more. The author in Hebrews says that our brotherly love should continue. We can't afford to settle and be satisfied with where we already are in our family love of each other. It's not a guilt trip. This is an invitation to the joy of living out God's design for the church. And if you are someone who hears this, and maybe instead of empowered, you feel bitter or cynical, you're thinking, I hear that, but none of these people are doing that for me. I know it's easy to let your bitterness and resentment grow, but I want to challenge you if that's you. Part of what this means to be a family is to go talk about those things. Glorifying God in this way as a family is worth the awkward conversation. So let's just commit as a church. Let's create a gospel culture where people who feel lonely can be heard and given friends in Jesus' name. you imagine? Let's just commit. Someone comes up to you and says, I need a friend. Our heart responses won't be awkward, defensive, emotional stiff arm. It's welcome, brother. Welcome, sister. Let's be family. It's part of what it means to glorify God in this way. And of course, all of this is done in purity, where we are wise with our emotions and physical boundaries. So please be wise and discerning and respectful. This is not a license to be uh, borderline inappropriate. It's a license to respectfully engage each other as moms, dads, brothers, and sisters. We must encourage each other. Please don't hear this and let it float by. We are a family and we are freed by grace 
to act like it. So to conclude this morning, part of what it looks like to live our life as a church family is to be a church family on mission. The way that we live these things out in the day-to-day will be a shining light of gospel love to our community. And we also have to be ready and willing and eager to bring more people into the family because our Heavenly Father is eager to adopt more sons and daughters. Look around the room. These people are bought by his blood. Have you ever slowly gone through the church directory, looked at those faces or their initials, lack thereof, and truly stopped and been thankful for the people that God has entrusted you during this season of your life? Some of you just need to leave this morning and go actually learn everyone's name and face in this family instead of just loving on the same people. This would be a great application. Find the one you're most hesitant to talk to or you feel you're the most not alike and go say, hey, we're family in Jesus' name. Can I pray for you? Or whatever you want to say. Do you notice when people aren't here, is this really family? There's nothing else in the world like it. We are called, forgiven by grace, and empowered by grace to live out this reality. And Ben, if you want to make your way back up to get ready and lead us this morning, just want to leave you with this. Remember the gospel not only is the goal of this passage to show off and live in light of it, it forgives us from the ways that we failed and empowers us to live this out as a faith family. Jesus Christ has died and rose again to bring you, actually not you, to bring us back to the Father and to a people, our family. And at HCC, this is the local expression of what we have in that gift. Who knows how long all of us will be here, but let's slow down and be thankful now for the glory of God and the good of our brothers and sisters. And we do it all in the name of the one who saved us when we were dead in our sins, away and estranged from the family of God that brought us back to a true family in Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing.